Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode 20, The Worst Ways to Die, part 3. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works. I'm your host, Ash, and this is episode 20. This is The Worst Ways to Die, part 3. This is the final episode in the series of The Worst Ways to Die. Part 2 was last week, and part 1 was the week before. And this is the third and final part. I really hope you enjoyed this series. I know I enjoyed making it. If you have not listened to the previous episodes on The Worst Ways to Die, or do not remember the premise... I will be talking about some of the worst ways to die and providing real-life examples on each of them, and they are in no particular order. Before we get started, I wanted to issue a trigger warning for this episode. This episode contains extreme content and descriptions of violence. If this is something that makes you uncomfortable, this may not be the episode for you. You may want to skip this episode. My only announcement is, if you could, please take a moment to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps the show out, and it helps others find the show. Thank you so much for your support. Alright, that is the only announcement I have for this week, so let's just get into the episode. The Worst Ways to Die, Part 3. The final episode of the series. The first of the worst ways to die for this episode is death by dragging behind or beneath a vehicle. And you can imagine that this has got to be a really bad way to die. And this example that I have will prove that. On the 17th of September, 2006, in the early morning hours, as most people began leaving their homes to go to work or school, neighbors made the gruesome discovery of a mutilated body lying in the road of their until now quiet subdivision of Castle Rock, Colorado. As emergency responders and police neared the scene, a blood trail in the road beginning on Interstate 25 led them to the victim, which was over a mile away. At the end of that road lied what remained of Luce Maria Franco Fierros, or Maria for short. She had been dragged behind her boyfriend's truck for over a mile and a half. So why did this happen? The conflict began when Maria returned home late the previous evening, following her shift at the Taco Bell. Her boyfriend, Jose Luis Rubinava, accused her of cheating on him with another man. And now, to be fair, we don't know the whole story because Maria is not able to defend herself, and we are only listening to one side of the stories, so we should take it with a grain of salt. During his trial, Jose's public defender claimed that Maria cursed his mother using pretty vile language. This caused him to snap, and he beat Maria. He told investigators two days after the incident that he had done this at least ten times in the past. After he slapped Maria, he claims that she said, quote, "'You don't serve me as a man.'" That's why I have other men, end quote. And he became so outraged about this that he tied heavy-duty orange tow rope to her neck 
and dragged her behind his vehicle for over a mile. Her body was found in the Surrey Ridge subdivision in Douglas County. The autopsy indicated that she died of asphyxiation and severe head injuries from being dragged behind the vehicle. According to one forensic pathologist, when the body is dragged by a vehicle for any distance, friction and grinding injuries are produced, and they involve skin and soft tissues all the way down to the bone. Death is a frequent outcome, and there are often multiple lethal injuries identified at the autopsy, and this makes the determination of whether or not the victim was conscious while being dragged under the vehicle pretty impossible. But imagine if they were conscious while they were being dragged behind the vehicle. That's just absolutely terrifying. It's what nightmares are made of. Maria's face was unrecognizable, and similar injuries to the soft tissues of her hands made identification of the victim nearly impossible. However, there was a crumpled and stained photograph of a couple who looked to be in their 30s near the body. In an effort to identify the victim and hopefully the individual who did this to her, the police decided to release the picture to the media. The calls came in almost immediately. Friends of Maria's recognized her from the picture, and they also recognized her boyfriend from the picture. The couple came over to the United States to find work. Both worked at different fast food restaurants in the area. Friends of the couple reported that they had a pretty toxic relationship, and they often fought a lot and pretty frequently. The following day, road crews were out spreading fresh tar to the roadways to cover the bloodstains. Jose was located and arrested without incident. During an interrogation by law enforcement, he wrote out his two-sentence-long confession, and all it said was, quote, Thank you. We are guilty. End quote. And this was in Spanish. In February of 2007, 36-year-old Jose Rubinava pleaded guilty to the first-degree murder of his girlfriend, Maria, and he received a life sentence without the possibility of parole in order to avoid a possible death sentence. Now, this was very sad and just absolutely terrifying. I mean, you know what it's like when you fall and skin your knee or scrape something, how much it hurts, but imagine being dragged behind a car like this for that period of time. It's really just terrifying and so sad at the same time. The next worst way to die is death by sanguination. Sanguination is death caused by loss of blood. Most people in good health can die from losing half to two-thirds of their blood. A loss of one-third of the blood volume is considered very serious. For my example, we will refer to the person as Jane Smith because her name was withheld from the record. On July 6, 1985, Jane Smith was found dead, lying face up next to a parked car in her neighbor's driveway, which was only 60 feet from her own front door. She was the mother of two young boys who were in her home untouched. She was just 24 years old. Jane was found wearing only a blouse and a pair of slacks. She was barefoot and saturated with blood from head to toe. Her head was shaved from her forehead to about the midline of her skull. 
Her left arm, the source of the blood, had been severed at the shoulder and was found beside her. A substantial trail of blood in a roundabout pattern led to a neighbor's front porch, then back to her own front door. Inside Jane's house, an even stranger scene confronted the investigators, who were hard-pressed to determine what had happened overnight to Jane Smith, the young mother. On the living room coffee table were six plastic bags arranged in a circle. Centered on each bag was a plate of food and a glass of milk. The kitchen was littered with food containers, milk jugs, more bags, and dirty plates. Two fresh-baked cakes, untouched, rested atop the oven. Jane's two young sons, aged four and one, were found sleeping in the home. They were unharmed and had slept through whatever had happened in the home. Whatever had happened to Jane Smith appeared to have happened in the bathroom. A pile of her hair lay on the threshold, and the walls and ceilings were spattered with blood. The floor was slick with it, and blood covered every visible surface in there. On either side of the sink were arranged three more plates of food, each with a pair of forks. Propped up behind the faucet was a Bible open to Psalms chapter 22 to 26, and a cross attached to a chain was hanging on the wall next to the mirror. The tub was partially filled with clean water. An autopsy that was performed by a forensic pathologist concluded that the pattern of her wounds indicated that they were self-inflicted. He duplicated her wounds using the same knife Jane used and estimated that she spent upwards of two hours in the bathroom hacking at her left shoulder to sever the arm. In his report, he noted several bruises of recent origin on her right arm. Investigators canvassed the neighborhood to find anyone who had heard or seen anything, yet they didn't come up with anything. She endured epic pain without making a sound above a whimper for at least two hours. Jane's history showed that she suffered from severe postpartum depression following the births of each of her sons. She took up Bible study to the extent she ignored other obligations, including caring of her children. She set several house fires, explaining the fires were necessary to combat evil spirits. She said she heard voices calling out to her in the dark, saying, quote, I want you, I want you, end quote. She was finally hospitalized and diagnosed with schizophrenia. Staff often heard her chanting, quote, I love Jesus, end quote, and proclaiming her sinful ways. But with treatment and medication, Jane made a good recovery and went home to be with her husband and her children. Then a whirlwind of events would come together and lead to Jane's death. Ten days prior to her death, she moved out of the home of her in-laws into a duplex in an isolated area. Her fisherman husband left that day on a fishing trip lasting several weeks, and she stopped taking her medication. Her downfall was steep and immediate. She entered a psychotic state, focusing on religion, as she was known to do. The detective who investigated the case concluded that the keys to interpreting her death lie in the passages of the Bible that was at the center of the scene. The following verses were among the open Bible pages and may have inspired her unusual behavior. 
And some of these passages say things like, Deliver my soul from the sword. He leads me beside the still waters. Thou prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anoint my head. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Things like that. Jane's death was ruled a suicide, as her wounds were all self-inflicted while she was in an acute psychotic state. The state of the house and the evidence she left behind told a story of a woman who was deeply disturbed. The plates of food and milk found on the coffee table and living room and the cakes on the stove were for the consumption and nourishment of her two sons. She may have been in this psychotic state, but she was still a mom. Death by extreme blood loss like that has to be absolutely painful and terrifying. You don't really think about that as one of the worst ways to die. I don't know, maybe because it's not super common, but it's absolutely terrifying. The next worst way to die is death by flame. And this is where skin is removed from the body. In 1533, the city of Munster, Germany, was the scene of a violent rebellion centered around opposing religious ideals. The recent rise of Protestantism against the Catholic Church saw many groups vying for control, one of which was a group of Anabaptists, led by one man, Jan Matthias, who promoted a violent rebellion. On Easter Sunday in 1534, Matthias said he had a vision from God in which he was ordered to fight their oppressors single-handedly. He failed and was beheaded and hung from the city gates. His position of leader of the city in revolt was quickly assumed by Jan van Leiden, a tailor from Holland. He demanded strict obedience and dissenters were imprisoned or killed. He would soon call himself the king of the world as God's kingdom was here on earth. He believed in polygamy and took 15 wives for himself. And one of these women was Jan Matthias's beautiful widow. The ousted Catholic bishop who had previously ruled in Munster laid siege to the city surrounding it and preventing supplies from reaching the revolutionaries. After a year, starvation had taken hold of the Anabaptists, who were reduced to eating rats and, in some reports, each other. The city inhabitants were weakened to the point they were no longer able to withstand the bishop's forces, and the Munster Rebellion was over. The three main leaders of the rebellion were sentenced to execution by flame. They included the king of the world, Van Leiden, his chief executioner, and his chief of staff. Pincer tongs were heated in a brazier until they were red hot. It had been said that their torment should last 60 minutes. During the hour, the victims were not permitted to be unconscious for any period of time. If they did black out, they had to be revived and time would be added to their sentence. Flaying is the process of removing the outer layer of skin from the body. However, they didn't stop there. They peeled the living skin from their arms, legs, and chest, and they continued by removing their tendons, muscles, and intestines with the hot tongs. 
The third man to receive the punishment after watching the two other men be flayed alive tried to kill himself while tied to the post, watching and waiting. He was unsuccessful and was flayed in the same manner as the two men who went before him. What remained of the three men were locked into individual crow cages and strung up on the spire of St. Labardi Church so the entire town could see. Crow cages resemble giant bird cages and were designed to torture men to death. After being stripped naked, they were locked into the iron cages that were too short for them to stand up and too narrow for them to lay down. The cages were then hoisted into the air and the men were left to their fates. No food or water would be given to them. Crows would flock to the cages to peck at their eyes, and the men were unable to raise their arms to ward them off. And this gruesome practice is what gave the cages their names. So that also is an absolutely terrifying way to die. It's amazing the torture methods that went on in the olden days and just how normal, I guess, it was and how this is something that could really happen to you. It's really terrifying, just like any of these ways to die. Well, I hope you enjoyed my three-parter on the worst ways to die. We will be back next week with a new episode. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review, and follow me on Instagram at TrueCrimeWorks. And if you have any ideas for upcoming cases, you can send me a message on Instagram or email me, TrueCrimeWorks at gmail.com. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you next week.